Happy belated First Contact Day, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today, I'm beaming up my good friend, Dr. Peter Gao, to reflect on a bunch of Star Trek news from the First Contact Day virtual panels, as well as some personal news about our scientific careers. If you're new to the show, Peter and I went to grad school together at Caltech. We were lab mates for four years and roommates for two, so I view him kind of like an older brother, someone whom I can look up to greatly as a scientist, and someone whom I can always turn to as a friend. Oh, and he's like the biggest Trekkie too, and helped me launch this podcast back in 2017. Okay, that's really all you need to know for today, so let's go. Hi, Peter. Hey, Mike. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you, too. So you're here because I have some personal news to share with the listeners of Strange New Worlds, and your reason for being here will be explained in just a second. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be very obvious in about, I don't know, a minute and a half. <laughs> Excellent. So, so my time at the University of Washington... Uh, specifically in the astronomy department there and the astrobiology program is sadly coming to an end this summer. Um, I've been there for three years and it was three wonderful years, although roughly half of it <laughs> will have been spent in quarantine. Uh, so in the fall, I am going to be starting a new position. It will be a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at Carnegie's Earth and Planets Laboratory in Washington, D.C. So going from one Washington to another, the state to the District of Columbia. And, uh, you know, the first thing that people think when they hear this news is, Oh, that's great, Mike. Congrats on Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> to which I have to tell them, no, 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 it's actually not Carnegie Mellon. It's the Carnegie Institution for Sciences Earth and Planets Laboratory, which is located in Washington, D.C. But the second thing that people say when they hear this news is, oh, isn't Carnegie where Peter Gao is going? <laughs> <laughs> what and a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's exactly right. You're going to be starting a staff scientist job there. Is that the proper title for you? That's right. Staff scientist. Yes. Staff scientist position. And, and that's like, that's the end goal of most academic careers is to get something like a staff scientist position, a, a permanent position somewhere where you can do research. <laughs> um, and so that's really cool that, that one, you landed that position, and then the coincidence of you starting that position at Carnegie roughly the same time that I'm going to be starting my two-year postdoc fellowship there. So we're, we're going to be reunited. Yeah, reunited. It feels so good. Yes, we'll be just down the hall from each other just like grad school times. Yeah, so for those of you who um, have been listening for a long time, you'll know that Peter was on the very first episode of Strange New Worlds, and that was because we were in grad school together uh, at Caltech. Now, uh, you know, you've gone off and done your various different things, uh, hopping from postdoc to postdoc, which is sort of the next stage in one's academic career after grad school. You did a postdoc fellowship at NASA Ames, and then you did one at UC Berkeley, and you're currently doing one at, at in air quotes, <laughs> UC Santa Cruz, but you're, you know, nobody's going to campus these days. Uh, and then you're going to be shipping off to Carnegie. Um, so I think the proper thing to do is for our listeners who are not scientists, what exactly is a postdoc? Like what, what is this thing called postdoc that we all have to do essentially before we get to the golden, you know, permanent position that you have? Yes, the golden ticket. Yeah, so there is sort of a, a standard path that one could follow if one wants to stay in academia, that is to continue doing science, eventually either landing a pure research position, which I have, or a teaching and research position, uh, as in a professorship. 
So typically you spend a couple of years as a graduate student focusing on your science and honing your skills at your particular PhD thesis topic. And once you're done that, uh, you are typically expected to do one to several postdocs. And the postdoc time is a bit, um, well, not very well defined, but essentially mm -hmm. it's a time for you to continue to do your research. It's different from a grad student because you are expected to be more independent. You are uh, supposed to be the expert in your field. You wrote a whole thesis about it, hundreds of pages possibly. And so you're supposed to continue down that road or try something different as well, it's all good. Uh, and you can work with a professor, you can be in, an independent researcher collaborating with various scientists. And the idea is to continue developing your science and your research goals in your career. And the idea is during these couple of years, you will find what you want to do and the kind of science and the kind of questions you want to answer for the rest of your life, <laughs> for the next <laughs> 20, 30 years in your professional life. And with that idea, you can then apply for permanent positions, places that will allow you to pursue these long-term goals, either as a scientist or a professor who will have the chance to mentor more grad students as well as uh, more postdocs. Now with, with scientists, typically you don't have your own graduate students, but you can certainly work with students and typically you are, you are supposed to mentor postdocs, which uh, is what I will do. And I will definitely work with Mike uh, when he comes to Carnegie in the fall, which is when I'll be there as well. So we'll both be, uh, well, we'll both be relative newbies to Carnegie at our career stage, but Mike was at Carnegie way before I uh, knew it existed uh, way back when. So Mike, tell us about that. Well, I was a summer scholar is what they called it. It was this program. Um, often you hear the letters REU, um, a research. Oh gosh, what does that even stand for? Um, <laughs> too many acronyms. Uh, oh, we'll research in experience, research experience for undergraduates, I think. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, and basically, it's a ten-week internship uh, for people who are in college to get a little taste of what it's like to be a researcher. Carnegie is one of these nice places that runs a whole program that welcomes researchers from all around the United States, but also outside of the states. We had, um, I think one of our cohort was from Canada um, that mm -hmm. year. Uh, yeah, yay Canada. <laughs> um, uh, and so it was a really good experience, my very first research experience. Um, and uh, basically, I was squeezing materials between diamonds. And uh, the reason why diamonds is because they're very hard. So you can squeeze things to super high pressures that mimic the pressures inside of the earth or other planets and they're see-through, which means you can shoot lasers through them to heat materials to the temperatures that you would experience in the interiors of the earth or other planets. Uh, and so that was sort of my project to figure out what argon does at, at super high pressures and temperatures. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was an interesting research experience. Um, interesting in the sense that I definitely freaked out a lot because I may or may not have misplaced a diamond. <laughs> and I may or may not have broken a diamond. <laughs> that, considering that it's the hardest, hardest rock, hardest mineral, that is quite a feat. <laughs> uh, so it was a stressful experience, but I think I, I did learn a lot about the scientific method and being an actual scientist. Um, I should say that Carnegie is... Again, not Carnegie Mellon, which is a university. <laughs> it teaches undergrads and things like that. But the Carnegie Institute, which we'll be at, is a very different kind of academic institution. Peter, do you want to say a few words about what Carnegie actually is for people who have never heard of it before? Yeah, so Carnegie Institution for Science is a very unique place in academia. Uh, it's not a university. It's also not one of these uh, so-called soft money places where they support your work but you have to apply for your own grants and earn your own money through government grants and proposals and so on and so forth. Carnegie is a place that was founded by Andrew Carnegie, billionaire more than 100 years ago, essentially set aside for research. All that money is in an endowment and all the scientists are paid from that endowment. And so it really is a place 
to nurture sort of the most cutting edge science because we don't have to worry too much about getting external funding, although we do have to, to help protect the endowment. But there is definitely less pressure to get money from outside and therefore more time to really focus on developing your science. And so in that sense, it's, it's a very unique place uh, in academia. And there's, not, there's really not that many places like it. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, being there. Yeah, I'm still looking forward to being back at Carnegie, especially with you there so that we can collaborate on lots of fun science projects. And one of the things that I'm looking forward to, honestly, but also this may seem like a surprise to those who know me, is that there will not be any students there and I will not have a chance to be distracted by teaching, (laughs) Uh, which I know if I went to a university again, I would try to find a way for me to teach a class because that is one of the things that I love to do the most. But I think at this point in my career, what I need to do is actually focus on trying to carve my own scientific niche out and um, get known in the fields for pioneering some kind of new science that uh, has never been done before. I mean, that's, that's a very Star Trek kind of thing to do. <laughs> and to, to make sure that I cannot teach for two years, um, <laughs> you know, I teach on a large scale. I'll still give like you know, public talks about science and Star Trek. I mean, I can never stop doing that. But, um, you know, when you do teach, it takes a lot of time away from research. And so I'm looking forward to the forced break from having to do that. Peter, uh, my last question about this new endeavor that we're beginning is that, uh, you know, as a staff scientist, you get your own personal office space, this office space that will house your intellectual pursuits for years, if not decades, where I'll probably just get some like temp office, right? You know, because <laughs> I'm just a postdoc, <laughs> but, but you get to design your own ready room, essentially right? Your own captain's ready room. So exactly. Uh, how yes. is how is Star Trek going to feature in this office of yours? Oh my gosh. Uh, I'll build it <laughs> like uh, the bridge of the enterprise. Uh, <laughs> I wish. Uh, I don't think it's in the budget, unfortunately. Uh, so, uh, I mean, without a doubt, all of my uh, Star Trek ship models uh, will be there uh, at some point. I'll most likely add more. There will be Star Trek posters. Again, that goes without saying. And as for other things, I'm definitely open to suggestions. Any kind of knickknack I can just put on my desk or stick to a wall will be there uh, and probably come out of the decoration budget that I'm given <laughs> for putting <laughs> together this office. That's uh, awesome. So yeah, anything anything goes. Is there a tardigrade plushie I can put on my couch? Uh, <laughs> I will get that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Uh, listeners, send Peter a tardigrade plushie, mycelial network uh, uh, capable, of course. Exactly. So, Peter, you haven't been on Strange New Worlds since last summer, I believe, when we did the 100th episode reunion with Elise Cuts, And that means that I haven't actually spoken to you about Star Trek Lower Decks or Star Trek Discovery's third season on the podcast yet. So I have a series of rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Engage. (laughs) Okay, Lower Decks first, because that's uh, the order that it came out in. So we have four (laughs) main characters on Lower Decks, Ensign's Mariner, Boimler, Tendi, and Rutherford. Which of those is most like you? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh... I would think maybe Boimler. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> like I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think I'm so devoid of of decency as to focus just on climbing the career ladder. But you know, getting up there in terms of a career is certainly important to me. Uh, although, again, I'm not going to be not going to be at the level where I'm trying to figure out what my uh, you know what the faculty search committee's favorite cookies are. Uh, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to know that. Uh, you know, sometimes I do get nervous trying to talk to, uh, you know, sort of uh, famous professors, don't want to come off as some weird, uh, you know, junior scientist or anything like that. So to some extent, maybe, yeah, I guess I'll have to say it's Boimler, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I, I don't think I'm badass. I'm not badass enough to be Mariner. Um, <laughs> and I don't have any mechanical bits like uh, Rutherford. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they all speak to me in different ways. Um, again, I, I don't think I'm quite 
as brash as Mariner. I think I would like to think of myself as more of a attendee, but I definitely mm-hmm. see the Boimler inside of me too. That like, <laughs> you know, uh, you're very enthusiastic. I'm very, yeah, yeah you're very enthusiastic. Yeah, exactly. So that's, yeah, I'm not, I'm not enthusiastic enough to be tandy, but you, you might, you might have, uh, you might have that. <laughs> yeah but i see the boimler in me too i i definitely mm-hmm. i definitely feel that especially going through the postdocing that we were just talking mm-hmm. about you know how these postdocs are such short term assignments just a couple of years and then you have to you almost have to apply for a new job the minute you start a postdoc mm-hmm. uh and it's very stressful and so um i i don't think i said actually congratulations on being done with postdocing, Peter. That that's that's amazing. I can't wait to get there. Thank um, you. And, and, and it's almost like as if Boimler, you know how he applied to be on the Titan at the very mm. end of the show? Yeah. Being a postdoc is like needing to apply to be on another ship. But if you don't get that transfer, you are kicked out of Starfleet. Like it's that right. level of, of stress. And, and so um, I guess Boimler may see it like that in a sense mm-hmm. and, and so I, I i identify with that part of him as well that's like nervous stressful exactly. it wasn't at the beginning that we said that we were basically going to watch a show about grad students and postdocs <laughs> finally a show for us <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah okay um next uh, question is all california class ships are named for towns in california what's one town that you want to see emblazoned on a california class ship oh pasadena of course, our home base, <laughs> uh, where we, uh, you know, where we met and spent most of our uh, most of our fun times. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to a, a Pasadena uh, USS Pasadena ship getting, I don't know, I guess destroyed in usually <laughs> in uh, in season two. <laughs> very good, very good. And what is one yeah. scene from season one of Lordex that makes you laugh just thinking about it? Oh wow. There are just so many just magnificent scenes. I think the one that that pops uh, pops out of my head the most is probably all the scenes with the dog, with the Tandy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in that episode, it's it's actually been a while, but you know, it's, it's actually been a while since I since I rewatched those episodes. But you know, thinking back, that was just a fantastic, I don't know, subversion of the whole alien pets thing. It's like. I, alien oh my god alien pets so amazing so alien but no it's it's the dog and the dog too <laughs> not just a dog the dog <laughs> and then all the all the crazy weird stuff that you know it can do and including talking and uh, so that was a surprise uh, yeah i like that yeah definitely i i think my favorite scene of the entire first season was the episode where Mariner makes a movie and it just like, you know, it throws mm. all oh, yeah. movie tropes out there. And the like elongated scene of, of them taking the shuttle up to the um, <laughs> Cerritos and like the music yeah. playing this epic fanfare. And then like it just going on and on and on forever. <laughs> yes. yes. So amazing. It was so beautiful. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, switching gears now to Star Trek Discovery season three. Detached warp nacelles, yay or nay? Nay. Like, <laughs> oh, if no. I want to play with these ships, how am I going to hold three things at once? <laughs> you know, the ship and then, I mean, that's that's not going to work. Okay, so I'm going to have to keep them in their undetached form, uh, which luckily does exist, and they're not just hanging out on the side all the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't that's like hilarious it. that's yeah and and i love that your dislike for it stems from the fact that you want to play with the models of those ships and you don't have three uh, hands <laughs> exactly i mean the 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 voyager voyager was a j right it, mm-hmm. the saucer and the engineering section are separated as well so you need four hands for that Indeed. <laughs> it's almost like you need two people to play with one ship. Um, exactly. Well, okay. I you're, you're swaying me. I've seen a lot of pushback against this detached warp nacelles. So far, your reason is the one that is the best to me. <laughs> Things like, you know, all oh, the power transfer, how does it work? I don't know. They have personal uh, transporters right now. Like, you know, exactly. It's, uh, and also, I think that it almost makes sense that because we know that the position of the warp nacelles relative to the rest of the body of the ship matters or else Voyager wouldn't have the foldy nacelles. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like maybe 
there's an efficiency problem that the geometry of the warp fields responds to where the nacelles are. And so like at warp five, maybe the nacelles are somewhere, but at warp nine, you need them right. to be somewhere else. And that's why they're detached. It just uh, it increases the efficiency of the warp bubble or whatever. So I thought it was okay as a sci-fi concept, but as a fan, now you're making me nervous about those ship models. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What are they going to do about it? Yeah. Okay. Um, Grudge versus Porthos. <laughs> well, you know, Porthos is, is no royalty, so I'm going to have to go with Grudge. She's a queen. She's a queen. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And what was your most heart-wrenching moment of season three? Oh, man. Okay. I'd have to think back. You know, with, with a toddler running around, I haven't had much time to actually rewatch these episodes. But... Um, I think Terra Firma part two, uh, mm. where Giorgio leaves and just the whole re reveal of the Guardian forever. I think that was a very strong, very, very, um, very heavy moment. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is basically the first time we lose a character that's been around for so long. I mean, we've lost characters before, like, um, what was Jason? Lorca, like, <laughs> like yeah, Lorca, yeah. Lorca, you know, lasted a season, that's fine. Pike lasted a season. And we know he's coming back in, in Strange New Worlds. But George O uh, has been around since the very beginning. And I mean, even the whole hike through the snow was uh, essentially an homage to the hike through the desert in the first episode. And so, you know, that whole two-parter was very much built on this goodbye. Mm -hmm. And so that was, a, that was a very heavy moment, yeah. I, I agree. That was a hugely impactful moment. The salute that they give each other with Burnham doing the Vulcan salute and Giorgio doing the Terran mm -hmm. salute was super special because you would never think that somebody from the Terran Empire and somebody who was raised in the Federation on Vulcan would find such respect for one another and such love for one another. Yeah. It made me tear up just thinking about how they come from such different worlds such different ideologies mm -hmm. and yet they found common ground through the through the seasons to the point where they had such a such a heartfelt goodbye it's it's a very complicated thing too it's not just captain and first officer it's not just you know sort of a, a mother-daughter relationship either because of all this extra sort of she's a genocidal maniac <laughs> as well so it's it's complicated and i respect that i like that complication yeah Right. There's so many layers to it of exactly. each of them losing their respective counterparts of each other, but then finding each other. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. 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 Great stories. Great stories yeah. there. I would love to talk to you now about the first contact day events uh, yes. and all of the news that came out of that. And we can geek out about the trailers and yes. uh, talk about the returning characters and all of that good stuff. But because it is First Contact Day, and it was the 25th anniversary of Star Trek First Contact this year. But let's start with that. In your mind, where does Star Trek First Contact, the movie, what spot in the Star Trek pantheon does it occupy for you? It's the origin story. It's a very, very, it's probably, it's one of the, if not the most important stories in the Star Trek universe, because it, it marries so many of the best aspects of Star Trek in terms of the sci-fi exploration, but also the human human exploration, the human journey, right? Well, there's also the, the really cool action sequences, but it starts off with the end of this, the Third World War where so many dead and through the from the ashes, the phoenix rises, right? So that's, that's really cool. And then there's these fun interactions between uh, Geordi and Barclay and, and Zephyrin Cochran and just sort of the, the, the fun connection between uh, the 24th century and sort of something that's more similar to what we have here that's not too forced sometimes it can seem forced by trying oh like haha fish out of water fun but that was i think a really nice sequence of scenes showing the difference uh and showing saffron cochran essentially that what he's about to achieve is going to essentially launch humanity into a golden age of galactic exploration um and time travel is always fun the borg Part is always fun and recalling back to Picard's history with the Borg is, is you know, you get at the heart of the character there, which is hard to do in a one-off movie, right? You have only a couple of minutes to really set these characters up. And even for a, a grand franchise like Star Trek, well, it, it 
still have to establish the characters uh, in the first couple of minutes. You can't just expect everyone watching the movie to know, oh yeah, yeah, we know what Picard's about. We know what Data's about. We know what Riker's about and so on and so forth. So the way they, they kind of characterize everyone throughout the movie was just amazing. And of course the music, oh my God, the music. <laughs> Some of the best scores in the entire franchise, you know, without saying. And so, you know, I think it hit upon sort of the themes of Star Trek perfectly. I think I will summarize it that way. You know, it's just that epic struggle towards improving humanity, improving oneself. Uh, and Zephyr Cochran managed to, to pull that off and bring about all this good stuff for, for humanity in sort of the, the darkest hours. Love that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I love it. It's probably still my favorite Star Trek movie of them all which is saying something because i love them all yes. so much and i love the borg as villains the time travel aspect like you said the origin story of of star trek yeah of those astronauts on some kind of star trek <laughs> brilliant brilliant Let's now turn to the teaser trailers we got 3 of them mm -hmm. for Star Trek Discovery's fourth season and the second seasons of Lower Decks and Picard respectively. So what order do you want to watch them in? Uh, maybe I think Lower Decks first because that'll be pretty quick. What up? We doing sci-fi stuff today? Nice. Ah. Only thing missing is Boimler. He's got to be having the time of his life. I'm starting to think this jam session's got too many licks and not enough comps. What does that even mean? Ah! <laughs> Epic. Uh, which one do you want to do next? Uh, Discovery. All right. We're all living in uncertainty. Even for a crew as familiar with it as this one. Stress is taking its toll. But we are not in this alone. None of us are. Five light years across. That's the size of the gravitational anomaly. Where is it headed next? It could go anywhere. And we may not have any kind of warning at all. Non-Federation. This anomaly threatens us equally. Whatever it is, we'll figure it out together. Indeed, we are more than allies. Captain Burnham, make no mistake. You are in charge. She has faith in me. We are facing something we don't understand. Something that could tear us all apart. But there's only one way to confront the unknown. together mm. very nice yeah yeah very nice paramount plus okay Yay. and finally time the true final frontier is time time can turn even our most impulsive our most ill-considered actions into history. What we do in a crisis often weighs upon us less heavily than what we wish we had done. What could have been. Time offers so many opportunities, but never second chances. I saw this trailer for the first time i just i basically jumped up and down literally jumped up and down for like 10 seconds <laughs> <laughs> so, like ah! amazing 
Well, my question, my question for you was going to be <laughs> rank the trailers in order of how excited you felt while you watched them. And I feel like I know which one is number one now, <laughs> Picard. Yeah. Uh, so wh why don't you tell Picard. me two and three? Yeah. So it's, it's Discovery and Lower Decks. I think one important thing is, is I, I expect different things out of these shows. I think with Picard and Discovery, I expect, you know, good writing, cool concepts, nice characters, just what I get out of a, like a really serious TV show that I'm devoting a lot of time and thought to. With Lower Decks, it's more of a just, it's enjoyment, entertainment, right? I don't expect like season long story arcs or uh, extremely high concept sci-fi. I just want to get some laughs and see some really cool, uh, really funny Star Trek references. And I see that. I see that potential in this, in this trailer. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy season two yeah, mm -hmm. with, uh, mm -hmm. with Lower Decks. I guess we should start with the return of Q, because as we were watching this, <laughs> I mean, you were essentially jumping up and down. You know, you weren't actually physically doing that, but I saw your face light up as if you wanted to do that. <laughs> but I think you would tear yes. you would tear your headphones out of your computer if you did. Uh, so that's what stopped you. But uh, yeah, so obviously Q has this huge implication for the second season just because of his history with Picard. Mm -hmm. as, as John Delancey, the actor for Q, said in the First Contact Day panels, Q is deliciously naughty, marvelously annoying, terribly self-involved. <laughs> and uh, I think that is such a perfect encapsulation of who he is and yes. why he is such a foil for Picard because Picard is literally the opposite of all of those things. And I'm just wondering for you, Peter, what are you looking forward to in terms of a renewed Q Picard dynamic? I just cannot wait to see them interact. Uh, uh, I think Q has always been that wild card factor. And anytime he shows up in a TNG episode, uh, you just know something ridiculous is about to happen. And all the characters will be challenged in ways that perhaps Alien of the Week cannot challenge them. You know, really hit them with, as Q said, different possibilities of existence, just really kick them out of their comfort zone. So, you know, now that uh, Picard has essentially came, uh, come out of retirement, he's got a new body, new lease on life, suddenly Q dropping by, I think their interactions will be just absolutely golden. I don't know, I, I'm not sure what to really expect, except that it's gonna be extremely interesting. I, I think, you know, I'm pretty much enjoyed every single Q episode. I think they've been, just the best TNG you can offer, including All Good Things, which I consider the best episode of, T uh, well, the best, I guess, two episodes, but the best complete story uh, in TNG, in my opinion. So I think having Q around, not only can we see some really, really fun character interactions, but also, right, the possibility of just, again, high concept, ridiculous sci-fi ideas that blows my mind over and over again. <laughs> So I think that's why I'm super excited. Of course, there's there's a lot more in that trailer too, which I guess we'll get to later. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or might as well get to right now. Um, <laughs> so with Q, yeah. of course, comes all of his powers. Uh, and it seems like a big mm -hmm. theme of this trailer is time and um, sort of a twinge of regret for things that you wish you yeah. did differently. Uh, and of course, as we know mm -hmm. with Q, you can sometimes have second chances to relive different parts of your life in a way that maybe you wish it had gone and then see the outcome. I'm thinking specifically of Tapestry, that marvelous Next Generation episode mm -hmm. where Picard gets to experience an alternate reality in which he made different decisions as a younger cadet and that led him to a different standing on the Enterprise. So um, Peter, let's talk about time. Let's talk about regret. Let's talk about all of the other th great things we saw in this trailer. Yeah, well, I just want to add that that I just realized that Tapestry was basically a Picard as a lifelong lower decker, uh, which, <laughs> which is pretty funny that yeah. we have lower decks. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, regret was sort of a main theme of season one of Picard as well, right? With the, essentially the, um, the fact that he was un, unable to really evacuate Romulus uh, when it was destroyed, and that kind of led him to become a recluse and, re and essentially retire. 
out of Starfleet. Um, you know, it's been a while since I watched the end of the season, but maybe there's still more of that to explore. Um, certainly he's realized that it's no point sitting around his, his uh, chateau, drinking wine and, and farming all day. He should be out there doing things, but uh, it's also not obvious to me that he's over the whole failed Romulus evacuation. So that might have something to do with it, or it could be something entirely new, but Picard has, I think, quite a few things he thought he could have done differently in his life anyway. You know, that's just, I guess it comes hand in hand with being a captain and being being responsible for so many people and so many people who end up being your colleagues and really close friends. So I'm eager to, uh, I'm really eager to see what's explored. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm always a sucker for time travel stories. I love those. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know where they're going to go. It seems like maybe visiting the Stargazer is one mm -hmm. possibility, yeah. given the model that was on his desk. Right. There was also the Prophet tablet. The first, ah, yes. the first thing you see, which, you know, I didn't notice it until I, I went on Twitter and somebody pointed that out. And that just changes everything because, you know, I can see the Stargazer as, you know, a link to Picard, perhaps a symbolism of uh, his past and his past struggle. So I don't expect to see it if they actually physically go back to those times. I'll be pleasantly surprised, but I don't, I don't you know, I don't expect them to actually go, go back there. But that tablet has no connection to Picard whatsoever. And it's not, you know, it wasn't even in TNG. It was, it was, it was in DS9. So what does that mean? Do they want to put it there as another case of here's more things to do with time, time stuff, just like the clock and uh, the hourglass and the hourglass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the hourglass. So, you know, these are all timey things. Uh, but that seems like a very specific artifact to put into this trailer, and especially one of the first things you see. So, you know, I, I love Prophet and Pa Wraith stories too. And so if they're coming back or the Celestial Temple is coming back. That would be amazing. Uh, I know Avery Brooks has retired, but, you know, I, I think the powers that be behind these new shows have pulled things off that I did not expect them to. So, you know, maybe, maybe we get more of a DS9 connection with this new season, which I would just, I would love that. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Because I feel like we haven't really had much of a DS9 connection in Picard yet, or even in Discovery too much. I guess we went to the Trill home worlds and did, did, mm. did some Trill symbiont things in season three, but um you know, I don't think any actor from DS9 showed up in, say, in say Picard yeah. the way that Seven of Nine featured so heavily in right. the season. We did get the O'Brien statue in Lower Deck, so that's that's almost as good. I guess that makes up for it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hilarious moment. Yes. <sighs> the most important person. I mean, if he didn't operate that transporter exactly right every single time, goodbye Worf goodbye Troy Who knows, <laughs> goodbye Crusher right? yeah all gone yeah uh, uh, dematerialized into their subatomic parts was there anything else from the Picard trailer you wanted to touch on before we moved on don't think so I think you know those trailer analysis posts from a Trek movie and Trek core are always fun to, to see so I think in time we'll get more details out, uh, but for now, right? It's a it's a short teaser trailer with some very tantalizing hints. They clearly wanted us to focus on Q, but there were some other things as well. So, time will tell. Ha 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 ha! <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, let's talk about the Discovery trailer. Mm -hmm. um, that looked epic. I guess the first thing that pops into my mind as I recall the trailer is the change of uniforms. Um, yeah. <laughs> they are now colored in a more colorful way <laughs> yeah. than we left them off. Uh, and and we saw some what looked like body armor or, or something right. that they were wearing as well. Um, Discovery's uh, costumes have always been impeccable to me. And I'm looking forward to seeing more variations of, of things that people would wear in the 32nd century. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see, see the new uh, uniforms at work. And I, as I recall from the panel, they said that the old or the old new uniforms, the gray ones, blended into the walls. So 
So that's good that things have become more colorful, more mm -hmm. TOS-esque even. So it appears that they will face, I don't know if that's the right mm -hmm. verb, but um, encounter a gravitational anomaly that mm -hmm. is five light years across. I guess as scientists, we need to touch upon that. What do you think is up with this gravitational anomaly, Peter? You know, known discovery, um, the sci-fi and the science aspect may not be as important as the emotional human connection. So I'm fully expecting to find another Kelpian in the middle of this gravitational <laughs> anomaly. <laughs> yeah. To be perfectly honest, the first time I watched this trailer, I was a little bit underwhelmed. You know, it's, it's typical that Discovery has a season-long crisis arc and I've enjoyed, you know, the past three, uh, past three seasons, they've been a lot of fun. But right after I watched the trailer, I felt like an anomaly? That seems a little, not as high concept as I thought it could be, I guess. You know, we've seen anomalies everywhere. But then thinking more about it, um, especially with sort of the, the theme that became apparent uh, over the trailer, I think the anomaly, the main impact of the anomaly is to cause everyone in the alpha and beta quadrants to come together. It really is about, right, together, as, as Michael Burnham said at the very end of the trailer. So that, of course, is extremely topical. Uh, I'm glad they didn't go for a you know, galactic plague storyline because I, I really don't <laughs> like those. But having instead a disaster, like a large gravitational anomaly that kind of, you know, doesn't have its own conscience, as far as we know, kind of just goes around and, and obliterating things, really puts the impetus on all the different species in the old federation, so to speak, right? So they have to really, each individual species and each individual being has now to figure out, are you going to work with your previous enemies or previous allies to face this thing? which is basically what we have to put up with now uh, during, uh, during COVID. And you know, one could also say that because it's this force of nature, it could also be a metaphor for climate change. It really comes down to, to how, they're gonna, uh, how they're gonna explore this thing. But I'm guessing the main focus will be how these different species interact and, and sort of the, the politics and the, the emotional side of things as is typical with discovery. I completely agree. That's, uh, that's an excellent analysis of that. And um, I, I can only second it. <laughs> you know, from rewatching that, I think one of the main story arcs I'll be really interested in seeing, of course, is, is Michael Burnham's turn being captain and see how she uh, really carries herself now that it is a permanent, <laughs> it's a permanent position uh, and seeing how that develops. <laughs> so, yes, permanent yeah. position. I like it. Yes. There you go. Yeah, I am also very curious about what Michael Burnham's command style will be. Um, in the past few seasons, one of the things that she struggled with is sometimes taking too much responsibility on her own shoulders mm -hmm. because she just cares so much about everyone and everything. Sometimes maybe she tries to do a little bit too much on her own and needs to deal with all the pressure that she puts on herself, I think. She has very high expectations for herself to, to fix everything even when the problems are literally on a galactic scale. Um, right. And and so as, as captain, you do have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. As we were talking about, that can cause you to second guess yourself or wish you could go back in time and change things around. Mm -hmm. uh, so it would be interesting now, now that th that kind of responsibility is a little bit more legitimized by her formal standing on the bridge of a starship, but also whether or not she can use her stature as captain to delegate if she can right if, if she'll do that we'll, we'll see i mean the thing with the discovery crew is that there's so many characters <laughs> i don't know if you have this have this thing with discovery too peter but i find that there are so many characters and i wish that there was more time to spend with with each of them discovery does have its kind of large secondary characters contingent and it's always been a complaint of mine that they're there, but they we don't know really that much about them. And I think one issue that I, you know, I hope they can correct is a lot of times they have their secondary characters sort of hanging out by themselves and talking amongst themselves. And that perhaps is not the best way to introduce them because then you can't you can't really develop them before because you have to move on to your main characters and the main characters are kind of interacting with themselves as well. From watching other shows in the past, like 
Stargate franchise, for example, they also have a huge number of secondary characters, but every single time you see them, they are partnered up with one of the main characters. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you can spend the whole episode with them if you want, and you can get to know a lot about them from just the interaction between the main and the secondary character. And so I hope, you know, in the future seasons, they'll pair, uh, you know, Owo and uh, Bryce and then all these folks <laughs> up, right, with some of the main characters and have them interact more and maybe, you know, have them go off on a away mission together and, and not die <laughs> and, uh, and uh, learn about them that way. I think, I think it's, it's high time that uh, that happened, yeah. Anything that you wanted to talk about with regard to the Lower Decks trailer? Not too much. I mean, I think there were a lot of really fun uh, scenes in there. I think there's going to be, again, a, a new year of, of wonderful references and very deep cuts that, again, I'll have to go to Trek movie to figure out what 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 the heck they're they're referencing. Having Boimler on the Titan, I think, is going to be fun. I'm also, so I didn't actually get a chance to watch um, all the panels on First Contact Day. Why was Brent Spiner on the Second Contact panel. I, I assume I thought that panel was about Lower Decks and it made sense for Frakes to be there, but why was Brent Spiner there? That's a really good question. Um, are they hinting that Brent Spiner is going to make a voice appearance in Lower Decks? Yeah. Uh, hmm, I don't, that would be really fun. I, I guess he could play um, B4? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Um, yeah. Or flashback to, to data times. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the panel was definitely a lower decks panel, but more broadly, I think it was a comedy mm. panel. And so, I don't know, data's had his fair share of comedic moments. Um, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's why he was included in that. And Brent Spiner as a person is just hilarious. Yes. So, <laughs> um, well, that brings me to my second to last question that I have mm-hmm. for you and my last Star Trek First Contact Day mm-hmm. panel question. And that is something actually that Mike McMahon, the creator of Lower Decks, said in this panel that we're mm-hmm. talking about, the Second Contact panel. And it really struck me. And I wrote it down because I was like, this is something that I love. I love that he said this. Okay, so what he said was, the reason that Star Trek is important to every scientist you meet to every JPL engineer to like, you know, the reason that Star Trek gets you into the sciences is because it humanizes it. And the way that it humanizes it is through personal exploration. And he spoke at length about how comedy is a part of that personal exploration or a window into the personal exploration to humanize science. And that's why Star Trek is so great. I really think that the comedic moments in every Star Trek series really caters to personal truth. It really caters to who am I and what brings me joy and why am I out here looking for truth in the first place? Because without, without that aspect of yourself, then, then you're just the Borg. But if you're a person, whether you're a Klingon or a human or an android or a whatever, like if you, if you, can, if you can laugh and you can find joy and you can, you can live a life that's more than just collecting data, then those are stories that spark to an audience, like we can all get behind that. And I think that you have all of this great aspirational stuff with Star Trek, but if you don't have character and you don't have comedy and you don't have these downbeats and these B stories and these things that you're following, it doesn't have as much impact. And I think that's that's where the comedy really helps with Star Trek. And I was wondering if you wanted to just respond or reflect on how Star Trek has humanized science in your eyes. Yeah, well, first of all, did he actually mention JPL? He actually said JPL. <gasps> oh man, <laughs> this guy, this guy, this guy's after my own heart. Jeez. <laughs> okay, wow, that's a deep cut. <laughs> um, so that's an um, that's a wonderful quote and a wonderful discussion point. Um, I think seeing all these people facing the unknown and using logic, using the scientific method to explore what's going on around them. I think that definitely spoke to me. Uh, I think it, it showed that in a time where you can just sit down and really think through a problem and solve that problem using science, using reasoning, and also using and also considering human emotions and human uh, just the humanity of it all. I think that really spoke to me. 
it's a time where you can just, you know, without all the other noise and all the little issues that pop up between people and between groups, kind of making everything much more complicated than it should be. I think Star Trek showed that that future is viable and inspires us to, to be more and do more with our work. That if we, if we continue doing our science that we can figure out something really profound about the universe. Absolutely. The quest to explore our universe is, is very human and it can touch mm-hmm. people on so many different levels. And you don't need to be a practicing scientist to get the joy out of science. I don't know why I said it like that, but (laughs) science, (laughs) the joy in science is is something that can spark wonder in anybody. And I also would see the the flip side of that, you know, how how Star Trek also scienceifies the humanities in a way Mm. that- um, You really need both. You need both. And and what I'm trying to say with this is that like in Star Trek, the foundation of the story is often something rooted in science, but the actual plot of the story and the thing that makes you think is something that relates to humanities, to ethics and philosophy and dilemmas that have to do with society and culture. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and to see the very technical and scientific minded people like Spock or Data or Dax or Mm -hmm. Cisco and Janeway, uh, Picard, uh, Michael Burnham, wrestle with okay we've got this science down now what are we going to do about it that has an impact on on the way that people live how does this actually impact Mm. life right right. and civilizations uh that is important too for people to to recognize about scientists and also as practicing scientists to remember you know sometimes Mm. just because we can do a thing (laughs) doesn't mean we should necessarily do it you know, I think in another sense that the, the way that Star Trek humanizes science is that I think to a lot of a lot of people, science is this cold, very strict thing. And you, you can only do it if you're, you know, some guy in a lab coat in a very sterile lab, right? Where, you know, hopefully we've shown through this podcast, Mike, thank you for your service, that scientists comes in all shapes, size and thoughts and, and you know, just people they're just people right and we're all fascinated by what's going on in the world out there and uh, some of us are physical scientists some of us are social scientists we're all trying to figure out more and find out more about humanity universe so on and so forth and i think that's what star trek showed is that all these people explored both and that you know if you're a person who maybe put off by that sterile feeling of what science is, you'll see that no, science is not sterile. It is very much a human endeavor. And our biases, our thoughts, and our our motivation and aspirations are very much in how we do science and what we do as scientists. So, you know, I think it's very important for people to understand that, that, um, you know, there's so much nuance so much more nuance, I should say, in how science is done, who does science, and how it's presented than sort of the typical picture where it's like, ah, scientists make grand discovery. We've solved the mystery, where it's more like, uh, we've made the error bar smaller by like a factor of two and <laughs> might be a little, I don't know, different than what we thought. And we'll get back to you in a couple of years when, I, when we have more results. <laughs> that's really what it is it's, yeah. it's really not like oh we're on the cover of the new york times and we've solved everything it's never that it's never that <laughs> and and science can be super funny sometimes too oh yeah, um, yeah i've laughed so much um <laughs> at my own mistakes or just at interesting situations that come up at conferences mm-hmm. um, it's like sometimes these things can be very hilarious if you yes. if you take a certain perspective <laughs> Yes. Okay. My final question for you, Peter, is something that I've been asking all of my 2021 guests because mm. um, the past year has been really hard for a lot of people, a lot of trials and tribulations or uh-huh. tribulations. Um, <laughs> and so I've been asking everybody at the end, what is something that makes you hopeful about the future? And it can have to do with Star Trek or it can have to do with science or it can have to do with neither 
just mm-hmm. one thing in your life right now that makes you hopeful for the future? I think what really makes me hopeful is that, you know, one way or another, this was a major shakeup of society. And I feel like a lot of people, in particular young people, the people who are going to make the difference, see the inequalities and injustices in society, finally. You know, some of them may have seen them forever. They've lived it. But other people may have lived a very privileged life. But through this year, through being very much online and (laughs) just seeing the news and seeing the virus come to town, they come, hopefully come to realize that there's a lot of things that are not great about society, but that can be improved. And so I'm hopeful that when this is all over, uh, everybody get their vaccines and people can come out, they can hang out with friends again, that there will be a lot of discussions between these folks, not on just, you know, what's the latest tabloid or gossip about whatever, but also important discussions about the state of this country and and the world. And I think people, you know, in our age group, uh, millennials and generation uh, Z, uh, (laughs) I think they're, they're, you know, I think we and they, and they've come to know of these, these issues a lot more just, you know, from being online a lot, but also this past year of, of seeing a lot of these inequalities gets fleshed out. Uh, And so I'm hopeful, hopefully in the next couple of years that there will be change some changes to this country that will make some people's lives, though, especially those, you know, those don't have too many resources, those who are marginalized, hopefully they have a better life, uh, an improved life. And we can maybe all move towards that Star Trek ideal that we all aspire to. That would be nice. That was such a good answer, Peter. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's so interesting, almost ironic how when life as you know, it shuts down and you are forced to stare into this little aluminum box 24 <laughs> seven, somehow that opens you up to more of the world, to more of reality. Right. right. And you see and hear more of reality exactly. in an odd kind of way. Yeah. I, I think, you know, society is built so that there are a lot of distractions that entertain you and make you feel good, but it blinds you to the problems of society. That's how they're built. But now that we've all been cooped up, we are able to essentially, you know, be woke <laughs> and, and see these things either through our, our these little boxes, through the rest of the, you know, the net, or just from seeing the massive way the world has changed outside. And, and specific to us in academia, right? Like this, this year has been a huge change in terms of virtual conferences, virtual meetings, right? Things that we thought we had to do face-to-face and as a result, spend a lot of money and really expand our carbon footprint, like proposal reviews uh, are no longer necessarily necessary face-to-face. No, you can do it over the net. It's fine. People are used to it now. Virtual conferences also make it easier for those who aren't able to travel very far, either because of family obligations or perhaps a disability, from really going to to conferences. And now things could be more equal in terms of access to new information that gets out at conferences. The GRE and the SATs, some places have made them optional, some places have completely get rid of them, and those have always been enablers of inequality uh, in how people get into these higher education places. So, you know, that's another change for the better. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I I think whatever it is, there will be a lot of change in the next year or two. I hope for the better, but we'll we'll see. Well, thank you so much for joining me once again on Strange New Worlds, Peter. It was a pleasure, as it always is, to talk to you about science and Star Trek and the future. Well, the pleasure is always mine, Mike. And I really, really look forward to sharing a, a, a corridor again in the fall when we're both at Carnegie. Here's hoping that the next time Dr. Peter Gao is on Strange New Worlds, it'll be an in-person interview somewhere in Washington, D.C. You know, there was just so much great stuff from First Contact Day, and Peter and I definitely didn't have time to cover it all. One other big news item that intrigued me was the role that Kate Mulgrew, 
will play in the new animated show Star Trek Prodigy. Mulgrew will be voicing an emergency training hologram of the beloved character Catherine Janeway on a Federation starship that is presumably lost and abandoned in the Delta Quadrant, which the main cast of extraterrestrial teens will encounter. I'm very much looking forward to this new mold of Star Trek storytelling and sharing with you my thoughts about it and all of the amazing science that this new gang encounters on their wild journeys. Finally, before we go, just a quick reminder that on an upcoming episode of Strange New Worlds, Trek podcaster Justin Ozer and I will be discussing the science behind three Starfleet Corps of Engineers novellas, Ishtar Rising Books 1 and 2 by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles, and Balance of Nature by Heather Jarman. If you'd like to read along with us, there are links to the ebook versions of these stories in the show notes. And with that, until next time, see you out there. Can I ask you a quick Exo Venus question before we do the, the podcast stuff? <laughs> of course. Just, okay, yeah. Sure. So, um, this is part of the podcast now. <laughs> I mean, you know, it could very well be. Uh, <laughs> so, so I got the rates A thing to work. So there's condensation happening. Right. Uh, two, two part question. One is, should there be any evaporation in the mesosphere?